that. It's funny. I don't have to tell them. <laughs> like, what's the, you just you, you simply learn from it. You don't. Um, you know, it's funny. I've even heard George Clooney say this. So I guess this is true in Hollywood as well. You literally don't learn anything from success. Like, take it. Absolutely take it. Um, but you don't learn anything from it. You learn from failure. And the thing that you you learn, the thing that you learn across hundreds of little failures and hundreds of little lessons. So you make a mistake in hiring. You learn that. You make a mistake by uh, spending a little too much time on a product. You learn that. You trust somebody you shouldn't have. You learn it. It's just like experience, right? It's like saying, how do I be a you know investment banker? And the answer is like, well, you do it for 10 years and then you know how to do it. One thing I would add is that you can learn from other people's failures um, in a broad sense. I mean, it's something you have to experience, but a lot of times you'll see the second mover, or the third mover in a market being the ultimate winner. Um, I don't know, Powell Books before Amazon or, or whatever you want to think about it. And a lot of times when this happened is the second mover in a market has watched the first mover. And the first movers made all kinds of mistakes. And so when they come into the market, they, they skip mistake number one, two, three, four, and five. Um, so, you know, learning from failure sucks, but you do learn from it. Um, and um, you can learn from other people's failures. And if you really have a, a mindset, I'm, I'm not saying this is easy to do. But if you have a mindset when something goes wrong, when you fail at something, if you think of your startup as having a certain number of failures before you succeed, um, then every failure takes you one step closer. And that's a little corny, but you need something to get you through. So if you're going to fail a thousand times, if you have to make a thousand phone calls to get, you know, a million dollars, well, every failure you have is, is a little bit closer. Uh, but of course, the goal is not to fail. The goal is to like learn from it and succeed. Kent, welcome. Thank you very much for accepting uh, my request for the podcast. Uh, I'm honored to host you today. Thank you so much. This is great. Kent, you have an amazing background founding companies and uh, having been uh, team members on many companies like Friendster, Nuzzle. What originally drew you to the Silicon Valley and starting companies or joining the teams? Yeah. Well, you know, I originally, um, I went to MBA school. It kind of came up a traditional route. I went to MBA school. Um, at Northwestern, and then went to, you know, majored in finance. And I came out to Silicon Valley to San Francisco and worked at Deloitte. And the, the clients of Deloitte, you know, if you're a client of Deloitte, it usually means you've been pretty successful. And working in Silicon Valley, what that meant is <clears throat> that we had a number of clients who were building amazing technologies. The internet, you know, emerges. Things like Amazon emerges. Amazing companies emerge. And, you know, from that position... And so many times, you know, geography is destiny. I saw people just building these amazing things. And it looked like that's the future. And working at Deloitte's great, and that's a great place. But I decided, you know what? I, I think what those people are doing, those people building those companies, is what I want to do. And so instead of becoming a partner at Deloitte and whatever path that was, I left and uh, joined a friend at my first startup. And, you know, sort of the rest is history. You sort of take that leap and you become a startup person. And there you go. So that's how that's how it happened. So you host also something venture podcast for many years. Yeah. You have interviewed many legendary Silicon Valley figures. Who has been the most interesting or surprising guest so far? I mean, so many. You, you can't really pick. So many have been so interesting. But the key to it is you know, you have guys like, you know, Charles Hudson's been on. He's amazing. Mike Maples is amazing. Um, Alan Powell, Trey Vasallo, all these incredible people. Ma Abraham. 
Um, but, but the key that animated it when I started, and it's gotten much better if you guys like you with your podcast, but I just thought the Silicon Valley podcasts weren't very interesting um, because they were about, you know, oh, Series A is the new Series B, and they were boring, and they were bad audio quality. But I would sit down and talk to somebody over lunch, and they would say something really interesting. They'd be like, oh, you know, here's my experience. I, you know, I'm Ellen Powell, and I worked at Kleiner Perkins, and here's what that was like. And I thought, well, that's the podcast. And so I just started doing it, just started having honest, simple conversations with people. And then it took out a life of its own. People started coming to me and saying, hey, I want to tell my story, and I think your platform is the place to do it. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's something I do. It's an, it's, an, you know, it's an important thing. But, you know, my full-time job, I'm a venture capitalist now. And I'm, you know, I know the joke is every venture capitalist has, has a podcast. Yes, but, um, you know, it's something I do as, as part of that. But it's not my, you know, not my main profession. What has been the biggest challenge or reward starting and hosting your own podcast, by the way? I mean, although it's a hobby, it's not the main thing. Yeah. I mean, it really, look, it hasn't been that much of a challenge. It's been a bunch of fun. I, I did, I did radio, if you believe that, when I was in college. You know, we had a, Northwestern has a radio station called WNUR. And, you know, I was the, you know, worked in the news department there, that kind of thing. So I basically had a, had an idea of how to do it. So, you know, it hasn't been a challenge. I mean, I spent a lot of my time having really interesting conversations with really interesting people. So putting it into an audio format that anyone in the world can listen to has been um, you know, it's been not, not too much of a leap. And, and what's incredible about it is, you know, every day I can meet a certain number of people and I do, and they're amazing and, and they're great conversation. Um, but with the podcast, people all over the world can and do just access it. You know, somebody in Istanbul or London or Mumbai or, you know, Tokyo will just listen to it and whatever comes to that comes of it. You know, they decide they want to do something. They decide they want to start a company. They have a company and they decide they want to you know, take it a different direction or implement something. Um, the leverage of it is just, is, is really interesting. And, you know, I'm, I'm not one of the big, you know, I need 12 podcasts a week, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it, it's a nice little piece of leverage, you know, in addition to every, everything else I do. Besides podcasts, you invest early stage startups. So what excites you most about investing early stage startups, by the way, oh, as a VC? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I have an incredible partner, Jonathan Abrams. Um, who is somebody I've worked together for a number of years. And, you know, venture capital firms uh, do what we do, which is the earliest stage. We invest, you know, in the first six months of the company's life. You can call it seed, pre-seed, whatever you want to call it. Um, we invest in startups all over the world. And it's just a really special thing to be able to do. I think there's very few people in the world who have the right alchemy, the right network to do it. You have to have a very specific network. In the case of me and Jonathan, it's a a network of founders all over the world. Um, you need to know LPs who want to invest. You know, these are uh, limited partners, the people who invest in venture capital firms. You have to understand how to put that all together. Um, but when you do, the thing that's incredible is you can invest in a company that's doing something. And first of all, they, they can be changing the world, right? They can say, look, the world used to be like this. In the future, the world's going to look like something completely different. And I, the entrepreneur, am going to do it. And you, you know, Kent, you know, Jonathan, my partner, are going to be able to invest in this thing. And that's just incredible as a, you know, sort of concept. And then specifically, it's incredible because we invest in companies around valuations of, say, 10 million in a world where companies are worth a trillion dollars. 
in a world where companies go public when they're 10 or 50 billion dollars. And so for just a raw financial perspective, we are taking people, our investors, on a journey from a $10 million company up to a billion, $10 billion company and beyond. And in the world of finance, that's also a pretty exciting thing to do. So we're obviously, we've been building this, you know, we've made, you know, right as of now, 20 investments out of in our first fund. There's an angel portfolio before that, but we're, we're pretty excited about what we're building. How did you understand with your partner, Jonathan, you met each other? Well, we were, so this is, it, it kind of makes sense all these years later. We were at an event that was about helping entrepreneurs and we were both speaking and he was speaking about whatever topic, you know, he was helping entrepreneurs with and I was helping entrepreneurs out and we kind of came together and said, well, this is interesting. We're both interested in helping out entrepreneurs. Um, and he's, he's the founder and, um, you know, the person who's the inventor who invents different businesses along the way. And I joined him and helped support him from the business side, right? Working at Deloitte, having a CFA, that whole thing. Um, but yeah, that's how we came together. We were just in, in Silicon Valley, right? The physicality of the thing, helping out entrepreneurs, you know, and here we are all these later, these years later. What are we doing? Helping out entrepreneurs. What does your decision-making process look like? What is your framework when especially investing startups? Yeah, um, it's, uh, so, it, look, basically three things, right? I've worked in consulting, right? So you always say oh, it's three things. Um, but the, look, the first thing, it's not that complicated, right? It, it's like Warren Buffett, one of the greatest investors of all time, tells you what to do. It's just you have to be able to do it and have the sort of, you know, experience of effort to do it. But the answer is you start with a market that is just massive. The market has to be so big that there could be multiple billion dollar companies in that market. And you think, oh, that seems kind of obvious. I would say 90% of the things that we see are in markets where you can't imagine there being multiple billion dollar companies. So a market for which there would be multiple billion dollar companies would be cybersecurity, right? Many billion dollar companies. You think of things like Figma. Well, there's a Figma, there's a Canva, there's an Adobe. They're all worth tens of billions of dollars, right? Um, you know, and on down the line. Um, and so that's the first thing. The second thing is, and I think Paul Graham calls this, I don't know, is it like founder market fit? Why is this entrepreneur? And now we get to the point where it's, you know, it's our experience of understanding a person um, who's an entrepreneur from being an entrepreneur for, for so long. Why is this person, or is this person, the perfect person to solve this problem? And there could be a lot of reasons for it. Um, they've been working at a competitor, or they've been working in the space, and they know that every customer has the same problem, so they're going to solve it, that kind of thing. Um, what it's generally not is somebody who went to a fancy MBA school and they're trying to get rich. That's usually not the formula. But that's, you know, now you're getting into like our experience. So it's that this particular founder is the perfect person for the job. Um, and then the final piece is, and this is, again, you just got to know what it looks like. Does this person have the grit? That thing that it takes, that intangible to build a multi-billion dollar company. Um, and that can be a lot of things. They, we, they can be driven by an intellectual passion. They can be driven. They might be an immigrant who's driven by, you know, desire to prove themselves. They can be all kinds of things. But I'll give you another way to think of it. You know how we don't say big market. We kind of say could there be multiple billion dollar companies? You know, a way to think of it is: Can this entrepreneur turn down an offer? Right. If you're building a ten billion dollar company, 
you're going to get an offer for $80 million for your company. Does this person have so much intensity, so much grit, so much drive that they're going to turn down that $80 million offer on their way to a $10 million company? And then if both Jonathan, you know, part of Jonathan and I both look at the, all those things line up for us. And remember, we're two different people, right? I came up on the finance side. You know, he's an engineer who emigrated to the United States to work for, you know, Mark Andreessen. Um, if both of us completely agree and everything lines up, we had a best. And that's, that's how we do it. And, you know, you do that 30 times in a fund and, you know, a few of them are still going to fail. And that's how, that's how this business works. But a few of them are going to do like we say, change the world and have a transformative financial outcome um, that is hard to find in any other, really any other asset class. How does intuition play roles in your decision? Intuition? Yes. Um, I, that's, that's a great question. It, it's kind of not the person. Look, it doesn't come in in the, the part where we're saying it's a big enough market, right? Like, yeah, you know, that's, that's kind of analytical. It sort of comes into play of figuring out why the founder um, is the perfect person for the market. Where it really comes into play, you know, intuition suggests that it's sort of this obscure, you know, hard to identify quality. What it comes from is from us spending hundreds of hours advising, working with, hiring. Like, you just can't replace that. So it's more experience that you can't really put into words. And so when Jonathan and I look at a woman or a guy, you know, whoever it is, coming in with an idea, and we kind of both look at each other and go, yeah, they got the thing. It's, you know, it's just from those years of experience and having seen it. And it's not pattern matching. It's not, you know, Jonathan invested in Front, which is um, this incredible company. Uh, Sequoia led the, I think, the B and the C. They're doing great. But, you know, the founder, Mathilde, had been a, a waitress in Paris. We're not looking for waitresses in Paris in, in particular, but she had that thing. You know, that's part of the magic of why we do it. And that's why you see these, you know, one and two person firms, seed firms do so well in this business, basically. So you work lots of founders, especially in different parts of the world and uh, especially San Francisco, Silicon Valley. In your opinion, what makes a truly great founder? Are there similar traits of the great founders? Hey, look, I think, and this, this is always tricky because you, you say one thing and then the next day, you know, and then the greatest company in the world is the opposite, right? You say, uh, you know, I don't want entrepreneurs who have partners. I want people who are just driven, um, you know, sole entrepreneurs. And then there's married couples, you know, that, that build incredible companies. There's brothers that build incredible companies. You know, there's, there's all kinds of things. I'm You need all the other factors, right? If you have grit and determination and you're the right guy and you're a, bad, a, a small market, that doesn't mean you won't build a great company, but it means you won't build a great venture back company because we're $10 billion. I would say the thing in common among the great entrepreneurs is the grit and the intensity and the drive and the ability to get past an amount of failure that you can't even imagine when you start. When you start, you can't imagine how hard it is for most companies. And the person who has the ability to, you know, fail within a company, you know, fail to raise money, fail to get a customer, your CTO quits, you know, all those little failures that add up. You know, the person who can get past not 10 of those, but 50 of those before they succeed and just have so much drive, it's almost craziness, but then crazy becomes crazy. It's that. It's that intangible that they that they all have. 
And look, sometimes it's sometimes it's just up into the right, and somebody's in the right market, and it's pretty easy, and it goes great. Not usually, but that happens too. You talk also lots of first-time founders. What what is the most important advice you would give them? To first-time founder, get in the market. Like any, get in front of customers. Get your product in front of users if it's a consumer product. The the thing that we see that we really, you know, any anything that shows that you are not eagerly putting your product in front of customers worries us a little bit. Stealth mode, private beta. And look, sometimes you need to be in a private beta. It, it takes time to develop some things. Not everything is, you know, a weekend of hacking. <laughs> the companies we see where while we're talking to them, and remember, these companies are three months old. We talk to companies that are three months old. And while we're talking to them, the founder has already gone out and signed up a customer, um, has already, you know, gone out and revised their product three times because customers told them, like, it wasn't even that interesting. Um, so I think that's one of the key characteristics is get your get in front of the customers and start learning and iterating as quickly as you can. Um, you know. Sell private beta if you can avoid them. Good on you. And also, what are the red flags, especially you see in the startup pitches that makes you hesitate to invest or reject the investments? Uh, I think it's just, I mean, it's just the lack of those other things, essentially. I mean, you know, tactically, there's there's red flags. You know, you see people who who jump around a lot. You know, if somebody has had six jobs in in seven years, you know, a lot of times then that they'll whatever that personality is that has them taking so many different jobs so quickly, a lot of times they think entrepreneurship is a solution, is a lifestyle. It's not a lifestyle. So that's kind of, kind of a red flag. But it generally doesn't, it, it generally is we don't invest in somebody who has the absence of those three characteristics as determined by the two of us, right? Both, both me and Jonathan. And, you know, don't forget, we and any other venture capital investor doesn't invest in 98% of what we see. What many, many companies get funded. So if, if we go through our thing and you're not a fit for us, that doesn't mean you're you know, not a good company or not going to get funded. It doesn't mean you're not going to create a $10 billion company like right? all the great investors. You know, a, any great company that, that's worth $10 billion, tens of billions of dollars, you can go back and find people who passed on them. Very smart people who passed on them. Very smart people who passed on them for very good reasons. So, you know, you, you, know, you have to... <laughs> You wouldn't know it from some of the people you meet, but you have to be humble in this business. Do you track your anti-portfolio companies that you missed or passed yeah, to I, invest? Yeah, look, we're, 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 you know, about, we're about three years old as institutional investors, so we, we don't have any of those. But certainly, you know, when we see a unicorn emerge, we kind of look at each other and, and say, two, and there, there's two anti-portfolio things. One is you saw a company turn it down. And that's, you know, probably over a much longer time period we've been. There's also, did I see it? You know, like, did I see this company mm -hmm. and even have a chance to think about it? And the key to 8-Bit Capital is that we have, everyone's got a different version of how they do venture capital. You know, we're entrepreneurs. We have a network of thousands and thousands of founders. You can have a network of people who work at Facebook. You can have a network of, you know, you can, be, you can you know, work at Google and you probably know Michelle Obama and, you know, you know, the chief marketing officer of Coke, you know, we know thousands of entrepreneurs. And so we, when we see something like that, we just tell you, know, not that formal. We kind of think it through, like, did one of the founders in our network not introduce us to that person and why? And then if there's some reason we figure it out and we tweak our systems and obviously the systems, 
the same stain test with that many people. And then sometimes it's just like, look, that guy, you know, that woman, whatever, did their last company with Sequoia. They did the seed round. Sequoia didn't let them talk to anybody else. They put the money in. If that's the case, then that's the case. That's how Silicon Valley works. So yeah, we, we think about it, but, you know, it, it's not an obsession. And look, nobody's in everything. You look at the great seed funds, and they're in a few amazing companies during a period when many other amazing companies were started. So, you know, those things are kind of fun, and we think about them. We use them to improve what we're doing. But, you know, all we got to do is keep doing what we're doing. We're going to be in a lot of amazing companies. I mean, you have experience both major successes and failures as a founder yeah. and also probably uh in the companies that you work how do you think that the founders should approach the failure what can they learn from it yeah it's funny i don't have to tell them <laughs> like what's the word <laughs> you just you, you simply learn from it you don't um you know it's funny i've even heard george clooney say this so i guess this is true in hollywood as well you literally don't learn anything from success like take it absolutely take it um but you don't learn anything from it you learn from failure And the thing that you you learn, the thing that you learn across hundreds of little failures and hundreds of little lessons. So you make a mistake in hiring, you learn that. You make a mistake by uh, spending a little too much time on a product, you learn that. You trust somebody you shouldn't have, you learn it. It's just like experience, right? It, it's like saying, how do I be a you know investment banker? And the answer is like, well, you do it for 10 years and then you know how to do it. One thing I would add is that you can learn from other people's failures um, in a broad sense. I mean, it's something you have to experience, but a lot of times you'll see the second mover, or the third mover in a market being the ultimate winner. Um, I don't know, Powell Books before Amazon or, or whatever, however you want to think about it. And a lot of times what has happened is the second mover in a market has watched the first mover and the first movers made all kinds of mistakes and so when they come into the market they they skip mistake number one two three four and five um so you know learning from failure sucks but you do learn from it um and um you can learn from other people's failures and if you really have a, a mindset I'm, i'm not saying this is easy to do but if you have a mindset when something goes wrong when you fail at something If you think of your startup as having a certain number of failures before you succeed, um, then every failure takes you one step closer. And that's a little corny, but you need something to get you through. So if you were to fail a thousand times, if you have to make a thousand phone calls to get, you know, a million dollars, well, every failure you have is, is a little bit closer. Uh, but of course, the goal is not to fail. The, the goal is to like learn from it and succeed. So follow up question. What could yeah. have been done differently at Friendster looking back? What do you think that Friendster's yeah. biggest strategic mistake that uh, probably that time? Well, I mean, the, the, look, there, there, this whole podcast on that, it, 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 it's pretty <laughs> complex. Um, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you, the, the simple one is they got rid of the founder really early. Um, you know, Jonathan started it. And Jonathan even started Friendster. It was the first social network. Um, it took off faster than anything in history. And, you know, putting aside all the complexities of why it might have happened, The investors got rid of the founder early. Um, you know, it was a rocket ship while Jonathan was there. And that in part led to what happened in Silicon Valley after that was Facebook, when Mark Zuckerberg put together his board, he set it up so he couldn't be fired. Um, I think there's almost no chance that Mark Zuckerberg in the early days wouldn't have been replaced just because that's what people were doing if he didn't have that structure in place. 
Mark Andreessen starts an entire firm that has this philosophy, founders first, don't fire, don't fire founders. So there's a lot of lessons in Friendster. I think many of them are really relevant to you, to most people. Uh, if you have the fastest growing startup in history and every venture capital firm in Silicon Valley wants to invest in you, that is relevant, but it's not otherwise relevant. But I'd say the, the simple message was that they, the, the founder, the founder was pulled out too early and getting the chemistry and the drive and the, the, the magic back was almost impossible after that. Nazal, that was another story, I think. It was acquired by Twitter. So how do you see the Nazal experience, by the way? Yeah, that was, look, we, we knew it. We, we, knew it. we know it now for sure. That was the small market problem. People love mm-hmm. Nazal. They love, pick any metric you want. They'd be sad if it went away. People use it every day. You look at the database. People were using it multiple times a day. Like sometimes people say they're using their product. They're not. Every metric that anybody would tell you was a, a good consumer metric was there. People loved it. But one thing that you kind of, it didn't have a viral component to it. I mean, it just worked fine by itself. So growing it would be, would be somewhat difficult past hundreds of thousands. And of course, in today's world, hundreds of thousands of users um, in a consumer product is not interesting to people. It needs to be tens of millions. But mostly it's just a, It's not a big business. And, you know, I've said one of the things at 8 Capital we do is we focus on making sure the market's big enough. And even if you're in the, the number one news app, the, you know, the entire revenue of the business just isn't that big. And everyone gets their news just fine from Apple News or from Twitter or Facebook or whatever. So you're not, not even solving. I mean, we were for certain people, but you're not even really solving a, you're not solving a problem that you will pay for. And so I think the, le- the lesson of Nuzzle was it was a product success, but and that you know continues to drive us as we invest in things. We go, look, I don't know if this is going to work, uh, but if it does, and these guys build a big cybersecurity firm, if these guys build a a big money management platform for millennials or whatever the company is, it'll be worth a lot. I mean, uh, especially the two companies' example and also your uh, investments. What is the most important element of company culture? Especially in early stage startup and scale ups, how founders establish it? Yeah, I mean, it really comes from the founder. And I, I've heard VC, VC, I admire quite a bit say it is a later stage. But if you're talking about culture, you're you're in trouble. Um, hopefully, the culture is driven by the founder and it is very focused on making that product and that business a success. Um, that everybody comes to the company and their sole purpose is the product, the, the, the thing that will make them the happiest. It's not that they have great all hands and everybody's buddies, that they have a point of view on whatever the political issue of the day is, but they walk away and they honestly say, I built that thing. I was number six. I was an important person at that company and we built it. Um, and it usually, it usually goes to working pretty hard, pretty long hours, you know, nights, weekends, things like that, which, you know, maybe, You don't want to hear, but if not, don't be an entrepreneur. It usually involves people being in an office, working shoulder to shoulder. But it generally, the successful ones generally come from the founder having a very clear vision of what they're doing and people being excited to make that vision work against whatever metrics they're making it work. I mean, you have been on boards, uh, I mean, company boards. Yeah. Uh, and also, I think you don't take board seats on while you are investing in early stage startups, but... What should be the successful board meeting look like? And yeah. uh, what is your biggest lessons as a founder 
uh, uh, that you take from the boards. And I'm talking about boards at earlier stage companies. When you get to a later stage and you get to public companies, there's all kinds of you know control mechanisms and audit committees and things like that. But I think generally early on, boards need to be led, not followed. Um, I think the key is that if you're an entrepreneur, you think of your board as one of your constituents and you manage them in a way that you think makes sense. You inform them what you're doing. You um, tell them what the strategy is. You show them what the results are. You politely listen for their advice, but it should be a relatively small part of what, you, what you're doing. Um, the board is there, I feel, at this stage. It's sort of an early form, so you can kind of learn what that looks like, learn how to interact with it, so that when you become a public company someday, you have kind of the understanding of how that works. When it starts doing things like its oversight and all of that. But earlier on, I think you want to make sure you are leading. You know, a lot of people walk into the board meetings, they're expecting advice. If you're an entrepreneur, you know, listen politely, they might have some ideas. But you don't want to be spun around by whatever your board. You, you don't want to be going back to your company and saying, oh, my gosh, my board member got back from a conference and we need a China strategy or whatever. Um, you know, you can, you can say, OK, thanks. China's interesting. I, I, I hear you, but that's not what we're doing. Um, so so that's my sense. And, you know, if you think, oh, my board is going to, you know, introduce me to customers or, you know, any add value in any particular way. Help me recruit. Introduce me to customers. Think of anything. Well, there's none of those things that have to happen in a board structure, right? We we invest in a company and we're not on the board and they say, hey, can you introduce me to a customer? We don't say, no, we're not on your board. We say, sure, we'll go figure it out and we'll commission investment. Mm-hmm. If somebody says, hey, I need some advice. I have a problem, you know, my, my sales guy and my CTO are getting along. We can help you with that. You don't need a board. So that that's how we think about it early on. Be careful and make sure you're leading the board, not being led by it. I understand. Uh, the environment currently is fundraising is very difficult. Uh, I mean, for the couple of years, let's say last year and probably this year. What is your yeah. top top tip advice for founders how to effectively tell their company stories while fundraising? Yeah. Should they tell a story or how should they have to behave? Yeah, I mean, fundraising now is probably like it used to be. <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> think about this. You have an idea. You have a couple friends. You put together a little team and you walk around and then you tell your story and then, you know, some venture firms give you $3 million. Like, if you walked into a bank and said, hey, I'd like $3 million, they won't give it to you. So when you say it's hard, sure, it's hard, but you get $3 million for you and your buddies. So come on. Yeah, it's supposed to be hard. Um, so yeah, you do need to tell a story. And I, I told you, you know, for us, the, the, the components of that story, right? Why it's a big market, why it's a, um, why you're the perfect person for it. And then you need to show us that you've got the grit to do it. And I think in terms of fundraising, the thing to understand is that you're talking to a venture capitalist, not a customer in that meeting. And a lot of times, and so a venture capitalist is you know, it's a little crude and simple, but A venture capitalist is looking at you and saying, is this company possibly going to be the one thing in my portfolio? I've gone out and I've raised money from all these other people, all these, let me call them LPs, limited partners, all these people. I built a whole career on this. My whole career is going to be one of these companies is worth 10 billion. Is this guy that, you know, this person, that person? Am I going to put 
$3 million or $10 million into this, and is it going to return me billions of dollars? That's the story they want to hear. And if you if you spend the whole meeting or whatever time you have telling the story of the customer, well, there's a customer and there's a problem and I've solved the problem and I'm going to take you through my whole product, that's not your market, right? Your market is telling the VC how you're going to make them billions of dollars, of which the fact that you've solved some product for a customer is a small part of it. But it's it's like, look, we've solved this incredible problem for the customer. Here's the, you can look at the product. They all look the same, by the way, I, you know, Here's what customers are saying about it. Okay, that's interesting. Here's how you go to market in a way that nobody's ever thought about it before, by the way. Here's how I'm going to crush the next three competitors. You know, I'm going to acquire them. I'm going to turn them into, you know, grind them up into soil and whatever the hell it is. Um, that's what you want to hear. And, you know, when the entrepreneur's up out of their seat telling you, like, you know, by the way, I don't even have time for you because I'm building the future so quickly. That's when you lean forward and think, you know, hey, maybe I ought to invest in it. Silicon Valley seems to be a close network. Uh, what's your advice effectively building the relationships over there? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think it's a pretty open network. Compared to other businesses, like we help people out quite a bit, right? Like, um, if you think of most finance businesses, they're very competitive, right? You, if you short the yen, someone's long the yen, one of you is going to win, one of you is going to lose. But in Silicon Valley, there are win and I'm painting a rosy picture here, but there are win-win situations. If we help a company, a, a startup, go from being $10 million to $150 million in value, Andreessen Horowitz or Kraft or Sequoia is happy because we've built a thing that they can now put, we've built, we've invested in a thing that they can now put $20 million into. So that works. If I'm a seed firm, We put, you know, half a million dollar initial investment into a round of two million, three million. We need other people to join us. So we want other firms to send things to us and we'll send things to them. If I, you know, get you into, you know, Uber as an investor, well, maybe you'll get me into Okta later. Well, there's more of a mentality of we can all get rich together in Silicon Valley. Um, so that's the first thing. And the second thing, like I said, we, we in particular have a network of thousands of, um, founders and that network runs right around the world and so we invest in places like you know like toronto or new york or, or london you know we haven't but would of course in istanbul um all over the world now i think the world is kind of coming to, to an idea i think brad felt on the podcast he's like oh companies can start anywhere and i think he's modified that a little bit to like well it's, it's probably a It's not just Silicon Valley, but it's probably not the middle of nowhere. It's probably London or Istanbul or Toronto or Los Angeles. Um, but, you know, there's 30 of those, not not one. And so we think in, Silicon Valley, I think, has, while it's very competitive, it's probably more cooperative than most industries. And I think the network now more than ever runs, you know, right around the world. Tom, since you have moved to Silicon Valley, what uh, has been evolved Uh, over there. What excites you most about the current startup environment? Yeah. You know, it, when I started in Silicon Valley, um, billionaires didn't exist yet, right? And so go, going to work for a startup was much more of a passion project. And it's before me, but if you think about Steve Jobs, you know, going running after the telephone truck to see if the guy would give him some wire 
you know, those guys were really excited purely about the technology. And the early companies in Silicon Valley, people were purely excited about the technology. And they still are. But we went through a phase where people started coming to Silicon Valley um, to get rich, right? As a, the same reason you become an investment banker, right? You probably don't become an investment banker because you're just really passionate about, you know, changing the financial system. You're, you're trying to get a $10 million bonus. So that happened in Silicon Valley. And when the markets are are very open, you know, 1999, we've seen you know, the past couple of years, a lot of tourists come in. A lot of people come in, they're going to try their hand at it. Um, and it used to be they went back to consulting after, you know, things got tough. Like, okay, you know, back to Bain, back to, you know, back to Goldman Sachs. Now that you have these big cash flowing tech companies, you know, Google or Facebook or Stripe or whatever it is, they go back to that. And so the, the entrepreneur that doesn't have the grit in a market where you don't, you don't just get your second round easy are, you know, go back to the, um, you know, go back to those companies for their, for their big salaries. And so what we're seeing now here today in a difficult market, and by the way, things are getting funded all the time, but in a difficult market, you, you, the first thing you see is a, kind of a much more serious and sober entrepreneur. You know, the person who's like, oh, I'm just going to give it a try and see what happens. They're, they're staying at Google. And they're, they're staying at Stripe or whatever it is. So there, there's that component. The second thing we're seeing is AI is emerging, I think, as one of the great next trends. Um, there's a hype cycle, but, you know, you had the emergence of the, the, the PC, you had the emergence of the internet, you had the emergence of mobile, emergence of cloud is probably one of them. And I think this is the next one. And that doesn't mean you go out, certainly not for us, and invest $100 million in some billion-dollar valuation. That's not the historical place that I think you want to be. But what will happen is today, tomorrow, or six months from now, an entrepreneur will walk into our office and say, you know what? Here's what you do with AI. I've been trying to solve this problem all my life. It's a massive market. And AI is the thing that lets you do it today in a way you couldn't do it yesterday. Think about, you know, take Uber, right? The thing you can do today that you couldn't do before the mobile phone at geolocation was you can call a car, um, you know, at two o'clock in the morning, Los Angeles, right? Or when Steve Jobs, you know, held up the, um, you know, the iPod for the first time and said, a thousand sounds in your pocket. Well, with, you know, RSS and MP3 and which technologies, whatever they are, now you can do this. And so... I think the, the investing in the next two, three, four years, there's going to be some trillion dollar companies that come out of that come out of AI essentially. And we're so all that's a way to say yes. While it's a tougher time than it was a few years ago, it's a great time to be invested. What do you think about? Is there a dark side of Silicon Valley or a VC world that outsiders cannot see directly? Of course, there is. <laughs> But I can't. I can't talk about that. I mean, look, there's all kinds of people who say things to you like, you know, instead of venture capitalists being on your board will harm you, 15% will do no harm, 5% will, um, you know, will help you. You know, I look, without getting into specifics, although I've had a few people on the podcast who've been pretty candid, uh, you know, the thing to remember at the end of the day is you're not exactly aligned. Your venture capitalist isn't exactly aligned with you. Not really. And, and so not, a, not in a bad or nefarious way, but just in a way you should understand. So, for example, a venture capitalist invests in 30 companies and you invest in one. If you're an entrepreneur, that's a big difference. 
What that means, can mean, is if you're not doing well as a company, your life is terrible. It's really difficult. You know, it's very stressful. If one of a, a venture capitalist companies isn't doing well, it's not that big a problem. And a venture capitalist might make the decision that it's not worth putting more time into that company. And that might not be a terrible decision for a venture capitalist. And there's probably five or six of those things that you can kind of think through where the venture capitalist incentives and yours aren't the same. And so dark things can happen there. You know? uh, yeah. uh, do you think that uh, Silicon Valley is losing its dominance? What's your take yeah, on the, the future of the San Francisco? It's the worst place except for everything else, right? Every, every year it's a new place. Look, this can be formed outside of Silicon Valley for sure and be successful. But every year it's a new thing, you know, the Chicago Silicon Prairie, and then it's Austin, and it's Miami, and whatever. And you can start things there, but I think it's always has been, and will be for a long time, that it is the center of the universe in this business. The way Los Angeles is in the center of the universe for, for movies and, and so forth. And I think you've always had this, this alchemy of, okay, you've got the universities, you've got the engineers, you've got the entrepreneurs, you've got thousands of venture capitalists, you've got the capital... You've got the attitude toward risk that you have in Cal you know, bankruptcy laws, all these things that you have that you don't have other places. Okay, so other places get some of those things, right? Say there's some venture capital firms in Miami now. Maybe there's a university, whatever. But the thing that's been added to all of that, that flywheel in Silicon Valley, is now the big um, company headquarters here. Facebook, Google, Stripe. Salesforce, these are companies that have thousands of people who are, you know, engineers or product people or business people who know how to build a technology company, which is the raw material you need to start a startup. So, you know, doing this somewhere else is, is possible, but the, the, the just tonnage of advantage in Silicon Valley is still pretty high. Accelerators. Yeah. Um, what value do you think that they provide to early stage startups? Are, are they yeah. evolving or do we need more accelerators nowadays? It's not what we do. You know, we invest in entrepreneurs. We are the most helpful people. They tell us all the time. They tell all the people all the time. We're the most helpful people on their cap table. We are helpful mostly in trying to help you meet customers, which if that's your goal, it should be. Um, but we don't try to invest in entrepreneurs that need or want help. Um, and if you backtest it, you know, take somebody like Travis Kalanick building Uber. He didn't want your help. He means you wanted to be given. Even if people try to be given, he didn't want your help. So for us, at least, you have to be careful because YC is, Y Combinator is wildly successful. But it's not really a canonical example of other accelerators. Um, YC is kind of more of a brand and a network. Yeah, they give you an hour of office, you know, advice, but you know what the advice is, right? It's, you know, double your sales goal, work twice as hard, get in front of the customer. So for us, the accelerator model is not our model. It, 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 it's companies that are needing more help or working through issues a little longer. Um, it, it's something I'd really be careful about like you know kind of what value the accelerator is adding in particular and there's there's a lot of them but it's not what we do you know we invest in entrepreneurs that probably would never never find their way to an accelerator maybe yc but but not not in general well uh, recently what kinds of books do you read uh fictional non-fictional and uh, do you fiction. have 
Great. When you come on these courses, of course that's what you read in this in this business, right? Kim Stanley Robinson and uh, you know, I just read, you know, Artemis and you know that that kind of thing. I mean, I think there's a there's a certain group of people like go ask Mark Andreessen what he's reading. And it's a bunch of sci-fi stuff. I don't, you know, people are looking for, oh, what book do I read for entrepreneurial advice? I mean, there's great books, right? There's Scott Cooper's book, Sandhill Road. You know, the, he's the chief operating officer at uh, Andreessen Horowitz. But yeah, when I read it, it's science fiction. And, you know, not surprising that somebody who invests in companies that could change the world would be reading that kind of thing. Besides your podcast, do you listen to other ones? Yeah, I listen to a couple. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. I don't, I don't need to hear more. Yeah, you know, much more about Silicon Valley. So obviously there's some specific things like, you know, Samir Kaji's Allocate podcast, which is, um, uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's more it, it's more about LP. It's very specific. And, you know, entrepreneurs might not, might not find it. And the podcast is actually called Venture Unlocked. It's, it's called Allocate. But, you know, in that, I listen to things like, you know, Dan Carlin's, you know, deep history and, and, and those kinds of, you know, those kinds of things. So, um, you know, the all in guys have created a little bit of a sensation in Silicon Valley, you know, David Sachs and those guys. And that's a little bit of fun too, but Kent, what is your superpower and what, uh, superpower would you add on that? You know, I, I don't think I really have a superpower. It's just that I've been lucky enough to work in a particular business. Silicon Valley, which at this time in history, I think is the most interesting thing. And I'm saying that broadly now, you know, people like you, people who help startups all over the world. I've been lucky enough to work in that business for, you know, 15 or however many years it's been with a great partner, you know, Jonathan Abrams. And we happen in all this world to have the right expertise and the, the right network to do this one thing. And that's the superpower. Like I couldn't do this if I'd been an investment banker for 20 years. I just went out and tried to figure it out. And so well, that's what it is. Maybe it's just being in the right place at the right time at the end of the day, if you, if you think about it. Um, and, you know, as we add to that, I think you, you just get, you know, I think we're relatively humble in this. But you try to get more and more humble and just understand that we're not the entrepreneur anymore. You know, we're the, we're the investor and we invest in companies and it's a, we're sure these companies will be amazing and, raise the Series A and go on to, you know, greater and greater success. And it doesn't quite work out. And there's a company that we look at that we've invested in. We think, oh, man, well, that's not going to work. And it just takes off and does incredibly well, raises its Series A and goes on to success. So, you know, that that's what I would add to what, you know, try, try to be a little more humble. Um, but you know, we're just excited to be able to do this in this incredible, incredible market. If you go back in the time, and give yourself a new graduate of yourself. And ad- I mean, three advice. What would it be? Invest in NVIDIA, Facebook, Apple. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't do anything differently. I mean, I think starting a company is amazing. I think the one thing, and this is, this is tricky, that I would, I would say is don't hang on quite as long some of the companies we've done you want to have grit and determination to keep going i think some of the companies we've done we've got a little longer probably when the when it was over you know it, it was clear that it wasn't working and you don't want to be the guy that hops from one thing to the next so that, okay we hit a little adversity we're going to pivot we're going to pivot we're going to pivot but i think there's a couple companies where i might have said you know what if you've given it four years and it's not working 
don't like that sound. Probably better said given myself. Thank you for the amazing conversation, Kent. It has been invaluable. Uh, it's cool. I really, I really appreciate it.